Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. It was once the subject of a Harvard Business Review article with the headline, Why the Spirit Airlines Baggage Fee Won't Fly. That was back in 2010. (laughs) He's former CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben Baldanza, still here, and the baggage fee is still here too, who now teaches about how airlines work. Yes, and Harvard was wrong on that one. (laughs) And, And he's Seth Kaplan, NPR's here and now transportation analyst. And when he had his bar mitzvah, he had studied the Torah to determine all the transportation logistics that Moses needed to move his people from Egypt <laughs> to the promised land, foreseeing what he would become. It's all in there if you read closely enough. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about the coronavirus, especially what it means for airlines and travelers outside China. We'll talk about why usually popular Southwest Airlines is making news for the wrong reasons. Plus, we'll listen to a real customer complaint and decide whether the airline is a wretch or the customer is just a kvetch. That's coming up in finer wine. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. How unfair, Ben, that I was the one who had the bar mitzvah and I stuck you with that line trying to pronounce <laughs> kvetch, right? That would be like you trying to get me to do... Ajita or whatever outward was from your mother last week in Italian, right? <laughs> right. Well, Ben, the coronavirus continues to impact the global travel industry after the World Health Organization said last week that it's a global health emergency, while on the other hand, recommending against, quote, measures that unnecessarily interfere with trade or travel. You can see the tricky line they're trying to walk there. I sure wouldn't want the job of trying to get all of this right, protecting people from a health pandemic without harming other people's livelihoods beyond what's necessary. Ben, this all continues to evolve day by day. And I think the temptation is always to try to draw parallels with past virus scares. Uh, probably the most relevant comparison is SARS back in 2003. SARS infected 8,000 people, it killed 800, and caused billions of dollars in financial damage to the global airline industry alone. Plus, of course, it affected related industries. Now, like SARS, coronavirus originated in China. One difference, Ben, is that China is an entirely different and more important market now from what it was back in 2003. I mean, in 2003, you saw more bicycles than cars still in most Chinese cities. And the country's aviation market, even though it had a billion people back then, and although there was all kinds of potential, the market then was still globally irrelevant. Not true today. Well, absolutely. And China is now one of the world's largest air travel markets and one of the largest growth markets. Compared to SARS, this could be just as big of an impact. It's hard to say right now because the coronavirus, as we all read, is is moving fast, it seems. And not only has the global um, announcements for health scare come, even now the U.S. Um, health department has said it's an issue here for the U.S. as well. So we need to be concerned about it. And to make that a reality, like we saw with SARS, People are going to be affected. Their travel is going to be affected. Airline schedules are going to be affected. It's going to be more difficult to enter the country from China with more screenings and 
probably limiting the number of ports of entry you can come in. And until the world sort of understands what this virus is and how to contain it in some ways, travel to and from China is just going to be more difficult. Ben, you and I aren't, of course, epidemiologists. Generally, it sounds as though coronavirus perhaps isn't quite as deadly as soon as somebody catches it as SARS was, but it perhaps spreads more easily than SARS. So, I mean, overall, it could end up doing who knows what, you know, perhaps be worse. All this at a time when the world is now, of course, far more mobile than it was back then. Uh, Airlines everywhere, as you said, have been slashing service to, to China. Now, if you're let's say a U.S. airline, when I look at what has happened to their stock prices, just as one measure, the reaction seems perhaps overblown relative to the importance of the Chinese market to them, right? I see you know, uh, United Airlines lost $2 billion in, in, in market capitalization. There, there's no way that China by itself, uh, and United is the most exposed in terms of just flights that go nonstop there. No way that that you know, causes United Airlines to be worth $2 billion less, especially considering that China has been a difficult market for these airlines, right? American Airlines got rid of a couple routes last year from China to, or from Chicago rather to China, and said that that helped its profits by, by, by getting rid of those markets. So, that suggests to me that investors are either overreacting or, on the other hand, they're worried that this could be about much more than just China. Uh, now that we've had these reports of people who never visited China contracting the virus from people who did, uh, how worried should passengers everywhere be and how worried should airlines be that people aren't going to want to travel even on flights that go nowhere near China? Because I think for, for airlines in a lot of parts of the world, that's the bigger concern and for passengers, too, of course. Absolutely, Seth. I think that people need to be concerned, certainly if they're planning to travel to China, and they may even want to rethink that. I think your view that the marketplace has overblown this in terms of the effect on the stocks is absolutely right. Right. And, and I'm not. And by the way, I'm not saying that it that you know we won't know until later whether it did overreact. I'm just saying that when I look at that, it's got to be pricing in all kinds of other things, all kinds of effects way beyond uh, canceling. In the case of you know, most of these airlines, uh, the, the, you know, a, a dozen or so daily flights to China. That's right. And we don't know. I mean, we know generally how this spreads right now. We don't know exactly the case. Some people are wearing masks, and then there's other things you can read that say the masks aren't that helpful. Travelers um, may have insurance through their credit card, or maybe they bought insurance. If they have travel planned and they haven't done it yet, they might want to check what their insurance covers if they want to change that. But I don't think that unless this really blows up into truly a global pandemic that seems out of control, which nobody seems to be saying that yet. But if they if that happens, then I certainly could see it affecting broad airline traffic demand. But I don't see that happening. That's why I tend to agree with your assessment that the preliminary sort of stock adjustments do seem overblown. It seems to be a case of our favorite friend, the availability bias, that something yeah. that is just so recent and so current and so visible seems much more important than it may actually be for the effect on the airlines, like you said. Some airlines have actually cut back flights to China to make themselves more profitable. And so cutting flights back or having flights come in only to certain gateways will certainly affect some airlines' profits, mostly American United Delta and the U.S. carriers and, of course, some of the international carriers that fly to the U.S. and carry passengers from China. I think we also have to think about, though, passengers from China coming through non-U.S. gateways, coming through Dubai or coming through Heathrow 
or coming through Hong Kong or something like that. Right. Or coming well, to Singapore or something like that. Depends who you ask, right? Depends on who you ask. It's, yes. Uh, and so it's, uh, you know, so we have to think about sort of where people are coming in and how much we want to check them and yeah. how long does this take to incubate and how long are we going to hold people in a port of entry until we're sure they don't have the virus. There's just a lot going on here, which suggests to me that if you have business or pleasurable travel to China in the next month or two, you might want to seriously rethink about that and look at your options in terms of your ticket and your insurance and such. Yeah, I got to tell you a story. I, I was happened to be at the dentist when when the news came across about the World Health Organization the, declaring the global health emergency, and I was going to be doing my NPR segment later that day, and, and I knew I had to, to, to sort of get my hands around one thing you just mentioned about the masks, right? You know, how helpful are they? And I'm sitting there, I'm looking at the dentist who has his mask on. And so I asked him first, I, I, I said, you know, yeah, the mask, coronavirus, all the rest of it. Uh, what, you know, how, how effective is it? And he said, well, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm just your dentist. And of course, I wasn't going to go on the air just with this. I said, but, but as a starting point, he said, you know, he said, you need to know that masks have all different kinds of uh, filtration uh, levels. And so whatever you're trying to prevent, you need to have the right mask. And if you wear the wrong mask, you could be doing more harm than good because you could have a false sense of security. You could feel uh, invincible against something that you're really not protecting and then put yourself in a worse situation. Situation. He said, again, don't go on the radio with that. I'm just telling you what I know from about these masks. But then the funny <laughs> thing was then when I when I went and, and checked with the with the relevant health authorities, the, the, the dentist was was basically right. So, uh, uh, yeah, definitely need to need to sort of deal precisely with with the threat, uh, not underreact, also not overreact and 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 follow all the all, all the relevant advice. Well, well then, Seth, um, yeah. there, you know, there's a site that some of our listeners probably know, but all of them should know. It's called thepointsguy.com. And the Points Guy does a really nice job of, uh, as you might suggest, making sure people maximize their frequent flyer miles and other <laughs> yeah. things. But um, on that site, they just put out a very helpful sort of guide to think about thinking about I saw this. the coronavirus. Yeah, they kind it's of consolidated helpful. all of the, you know, what's really happening and what's the, uh, what, are, what are airlines doing in terms of policies and changing and all that. Yeah, if you, it's pretty easy if you just Google, you know, probably the points guy, uh, coronavirus, it, it would pop right up. And I agree. I, I, I saw that and good consolidation of a lot of information is out there, but it's, it's, uh, they did a good job of putting it all. Well, and the nice thing they did is they, they took everything that really is relevant for people who may be traveling in the way they need to think about it. It's almost more travel virus focus rather than just virus focus. And that's what's good about it. So I would suggest any listeners who who really have travel coming up might want to read that document. Absolutely. Well, Ben, Southwest Airlines and the FAA are the subject of what sounds like a highly unflattering forthcoming report uh, by the Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Now, at the moment we're recording this show, we haven't yet seen the actual report. We're relying on a characterization of the report by the Wall Street Journal. Some of the information isn't new. We knew previously that Southwest allegedly didn't know enough about the maintenance history of some of the 737s it bought used from airlines around the world. Uh, but, but there are some new allegations, including 
one that pilots scraped the wing the wingtips of a plane and made passengers sick while trying to land in what uh, might have been dangerous gale force winds. Allegedly, the airline just kind of chalked it up to bad weather and didn't really investigate whether that was a bad decision by the pilots. Uh, the report attacks the FAA for being too cozy with the airline. That's not really a new allegation. Uh, seems to question the airline's overall safety culture. Now, the airline told the journal that it disagrees with, quote, unsubstantiated references to Southwest safety culture. Ben, I have two questions. First, I thought that was kind of interesting, not a humble response saying, you know, they're reviewing the report and it'll make any necessary changes, really kind of swinging back against the report. What do you make of that response? I kind of applaud Southwest for that response, to be honest, Seth. An airline safety culture is core to what it does. Safety is important for the entire industry. When there's a safety incident, it almost doesn't matter what the airline is. It affects the whole industry. So every airline, I think, does a, at least every U.S. airline and most airlines around the world do a good job of thinking about safety. And Southwest is not different from that. Now, if you think about Southwest relationships with stakeholders, it's always had a great relationship with its customers, a great relationship with its investors because it's been a good stock for a long time a great relationship with its um, employees because people like working there and are always happy, it seems, but not so great a relationship with the FAA and sometimes the DOT because <laughs> they've gotten fines from the FAA at times and they've gotten slapped a few times about maintenance hiccups, about their maintenance maybe not being as tight or as audited as it needs to be. Now, that issue is a little bit different from a pilot choosing to land in choppy weather and some people got sick or what could be uh, an issue on a ramp where a plane hit another one. Those things happen at airlines. And when they happen, they need to be investigated. And every airline I know, and I'm sure Southwest is part of this, does a good job of investigating those things, finding out why they happened, what could have prevented it. In almost all cases like that, there's usually multiple things that led to something happening like that. And I don't doubt that Southwest has done a good job at that. And I think it was a little bit of an overreach when I read that report to sort of impugn the entire safety culture at Southwest because they've had incidents that every airline deals with. Every airline has some scuffles on the ramp now and then or pilots land in choppy weather. And and most times the customers are happy they landed rather than went to another airport or went around as long as they land safely. So I actually think Southwest did a good job essentially backing their employees, backing their company, saying, don't talk about our safety culture unless you know what our safety culture is. Let's talk about the specific facts. So I kind of like what Southwest did. That said, that report would concern me if I worked at Southwest, and I'm sure they're concerned about it, and I'm sure they're going to work well with the FAA to try to resolve issues around planes they brought in. Their maintenance issues overall, again, but they've got a long history there with the FAA. So Southwest is going to do this right, I think. And and they and other airlines are going to have to be ready here for the FAA taking a very different approach. The FAA has come under all kinds of scrutiny related to the, not just to this, but especially to what happened with, with the MAX. And, and so the FAA is going to have to show independence that it you know that has been alleged not to show in the past and, and so i i think it, we're just going to get into a cycle here for a while anywhere anyway where airlines we're 
all of this is going to be under more scrutiny. You know, we're, we're just going to be this microscope and, and it's just, you know, like it or not. And sometimes airlines might feel like it's like, like the FAA is overcorrecting, uh, but it, it, it's, it's going to be dealing differently with them. I think than than it has done for years. And more broadly, Ben, uh, coming back to something that you kind of mentioned there, whenever I read a report like that, my first thought is that first of all, we don't have a counterfactual, so to speak, right? Maybe no sense of proportionality. It's not as though the inspector general looked at all airlines and singled out Southwest. He, he was investigating Southwest. So Ben, do you think a similar review of other airlines would find similar concerns and how worried should the flying public be? I ask you this because some people would read that report and say that's uh, you know, some of this stuff is a little scary. Sure, it's scary if it's uh, positioned to be scary, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, um, you know, every airline that operates, operates under a very highly regulated set of, of flight manuals that are approved by the FAA and operating manuals that are approved by the FAA. And one thing that's true if you work for an airline, you know, is that if somebody's going to come and audit your maintenance procedures or your airport operating procedures or your fueling procedures or your overbooking procedures or whatever they're auditing, yeah. they can almost always find something you're doing wrong, right? They can find some station where one employee, you know, didn't sign off on the training properly or one station where the fuel truck approached the airplane too quickly, right? They can always find something. There are so many things that are checked and so many areas that have to be followed that it's virtually impossible to get an audit of any type and say there's no problem. The issue is how serious are the problems, how pervasive are they, and what are the sort of mitigations that the company has in its procedures to make sure they don't happen with any kind of regularity. And so I think that if the FAA decided to say, look, we've, we've got to do more of this because we've had the spotlight shown on us for essentially making a mistake for certifying the 737 MAX for lack of a, you know, the bluntest way I could say that, right? Yeah. And they've got to sort of prove that they're legitimate overseers. So if they decide to start looking at all airlines for things like bumpy landings, for thinking like scrapes on um, on ramps and things like that, they're going to find things at every airline. I think that's a waste of taxpayer money. I think the regular oversight that the FAA provides to every airline has the processes in place to handle the oversight of those kind of issues quite well. And to try to raise that to a bigger level would scare people, but wouldn't wouldn't suggest that anything's less safe. It's very safe to fly. The FAA helps ensure that it's very safe to fly. I realize some of the things I said here might have sounded like I was picking on the FAA a bit, but it's because of all those procedures and because of all those manuals and because of all the auditing they do that it is safe to fly. And because certain things go wrong once in a while when they're when they're controlled and people understand why they happen and what happened about them, that's what how this that shows the system's working. That doesn't show the system's failing. Okay, well, time now for our first question, Ben. Here's Mike in New York City. Hi, Mike. Hey, Seth and Ben. It's Mike. Um, I have a question about all of the operating statistics that are publicly available through the Bureau of. Uh, transportation statistics. It's not clear to me why the airline industry is singled out by government regulation to give all of this information about its operating procedures and metrics in a way that's unlike any other industry. 
you can't foresee, for example, the automakers giving this level of detail about about their operations, or e-commerce companies or tech companies. So why are the airlines historically forced to give up all of this information, and do they want to continue to provide all of this information? Thanks, guys. So Mike is sympathetic with airlines. A lot of times people call in and say, you know, why did the evil airline do this? Mike uh, seems to have some sympathy for, for them. And, and you know, it's true, Ben. I mean, I, I, I there's a, a restaurant chain, a, a table service kind of casual restaurant chain called Buffalo Wild Wings in the United States. Some people know it. They have a 15 minute or at least last I know they had a 15 minute lunch guarantee that when you order your food's going to be on the table 15 minutes from them. There is no place where I can look up what percentage of the time they are meeting that guarantee. <laughs> right? And there's no agency I know of that I can file a complaint with uh, if, if they don't. Airlines, it's true. It's different. And, and uh, so Ben sort of uh, two questions there by Mike. He's asking why are airlines singled out and do they want to continue to provide this kind of information? What do you think? It's a fantastic question by Mike, and thank you very much. And there's a good answer for it, Mike. It's because before 1978, all of this stuff was regulated by the government. And since the government told airlines before 1978 where they could fly, how much they could charge, what their service level must be, and things like that, they felt because of that, they had the right to collect all this information. That was a agency of the government that doesn't exist anymore called the Civil Aeronautics Board. When the airline industry was deregulated by the Carter administration in 1978, the CAB or the Civil Aeronautics Board went away a few years later. I think it last went away in 1985. But certain aspects of what the CAB used to do still live in our Department of Transportation. And that's the part that collects all this information. And Mike's absolutely right. I thought the same thing, you know, and I've used it because I like to eat. I've used it sort of a McDonald's thing, example. I don't like pickles on my hamburger. There's no one in the federal government I complain to when I order a hamburger without pickles at McDonald's and they give me a pickle. Right, right. How can you and not I, like the, the pickles are the best part, Ben? <laughs> For some people, I guess. Right? <laughs> but, uh, but the point is. Airlines have enormous regulation around what they around what they do in terms of safety, which makes a lot of sense and how they train their pilots and maintain their planes, and that all makes sense. But there's this sort of consumer advocacy arm of the Department of Transportation that is a leftover vestige of when the industry was fully regulated by the federal government. Now, at some point, someone may look, someone may run the Department of Transportation and say, that's really our mandate or that's not, but that's a that's a policy decision that's above my pay grade for sure. If um, that's why it happens, do airlines want to continue it? Well, they kind of have to because they get their they get their operating certificate from the government, and the government gives them the right to legally fly, and they can the government can shut them down if they don't. So nobody's going to say I don't want to provide you this information. On the I other hand. If somebody came and said, you don't have to provide this anymore, I bet a lot of airlines would be high-fiving themselves and say, thank God we don't have to do this anymore. Probably the ones that have worse operations, right? I bet I bet Delta <laughs> loves the system as it exists right now because they get to brag about how good they are and they say they 
take revenue premiums over their competitors because of how reliable their operation is. Other airlines also have uh, sort of above average operations and the ones who lag, I'm sure are the ones who, uh, who, who wouldn't want to do it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think there are the, so, so, so basically it's, you know, other industries started off perhaps completely unregulated. Like when you talk about a restaurant, right? There was a time when there were no, uh, you know, sort of uh, health regulations and all of that, that was bad. And over time, uh, there has been some regulation to protect people, but the starting point was no regulation and building up, whereas airlines kind of the opposite. They were just everything was regulated and they were somewhat deregulated, but it's almost as if they have had to make a case for each regulation going away, whereas for other industries, it was the opposite. Somebody had to make the case for the regulation uh, coming into effect. Well, uh, now at cruise altitude here at Airlines Confidential, it's time for fine or wine following another great question that we have. More Airlines Confidential is next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next, but first, let's take another listener question. I've mentioned this, by the way, in past weeks, but if you've called in or sent in a question, we haven't gotten to it yet. We will. We just have a backlog of questions. So many great questions. So hang with us. We will get to your question. Uh, this question, well, it's kind of part comment and part question. Here's Naren from Virginia Beach. Naren writes, as usual, Really enjoyed last week's show, an interesting discussion on the seat upgrade at the cost of being middle. He's using <laughs> middle as a verb, right? Uh, upgraded from, we talked about Delta, uh, uh, main cabin, as they call it, standard economy, economy seat to comfort plus, but losing your window or aisle seat and going to a middle Delta allowed people to put a filter in. Uh, and, and that was actually a few shows ago. He had, he had submitted this right after that one. Uh, Naren writes, I feel that implementing a technological solution or patch to the software for upgrading only if certain conditions are met uh, shouldn't be that hard. It gives the impression of the customer having some say, which is, I imagine, not a bad thing. And in fact, in that case, that's what uh, Delta has done. I'm sure we'll see other airlines doing uh, similar things for those that haven't already. Naren says, anyway, we'd love for Seth and Ben to enlighten the audience about any other carriers that may have some say, like Interjet in the dichotomous airline or aircraft rather manufacturing industry. Keep up the great work. Okay, so I think, Ben, what Naren must be referring to, Interjet is a Mexican low-cost carrier, kind of an upmarket carrier, which, uh, which had a bunch of Airbus planes like everybody else, but then went and ordered Sukhoi Superjets. These are Russian-built planes. They're regional jets, they're a little bit smaller, hold something like 100 people. And, I mean, the story hasn't been all good there, but what... The, the Interjets didn't really work out, or the, the Superjets, rather, the SSJ-100s didn't really work out that well for Interjet. Maintenance issues, difficulty getting parts for an aircraft that not very many people have in, in that part of the world. But but they did sort of go against the what's generally the duopoly, the Airbus-Boeing duopoly, and went and showed that, hey, we're willing to get something else. I'm sure they got a great deal on the plane. Again, maybe turned out to not be such a good deal in, in, in the long run because of some of the issues they've had, and I know... Many of those planes are already out of service, but, 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 so yeah. What what about that? Uh, any other airlines that are in that position? We we have Russia building airplanes. We have China building airplanes now. What's what's your outlook on that, Ben? Uh, do do those um, 
other players become real competition and what does that do for the airline and the aircraft worlds? Well, airlines have some sway over manufacturers if they buy a lot. I have no doubt, for example, that the the A380, which is an airplane that Airbus is going to stop making soon, so maybe it's not the best one to talk about, <laughs> but I have no doubt that as the A380 was being built, given that more than half of those that were ever sold went to one airline, Emirates, I have no doubt that, that the way that airplane looks anywhere it flies has a lot of Emirates input in it in terms of a lot of the features of that airplane. And I remember this is a real tiny, tiny, tiny thing. But back at U.S. Airways, um, you know, they all have airlines used to have all this little sign that says no smoking and it Mm -hmm. would light up at certain times. And Rakesh Gangwal, who was the CEO of U.S. Airways and then started Indigo Airlines in India, very smart guy said, you know, nobody can't smoke on airplanes anymore. So why are we paying for these things? So he had, uh, he got Airbus to change the, the little thing on the, um, over your seat. Instead of saying no smoking, it says no electronic devices, Yeah, you know, to say, Hey, well, this is when you turn, this is when you're in airplane mode, right? (laughs) And that was just smart. Now that's, that's not a, that's not a real engineering part of the airplane. It's just a little label. Right. But the point is that, Airline, big airlines that buy lots of airplanes can affect what the airplane they get is. And Airbus and Boeing and manufacturers in China and Russia and other parts of the world aren't just a one-to-many kind of manufacturer, meaning they build it one way and you take it as it is. They work with everyone that they, everyone that they sell to. And the way the galley looks and the way the plane's configured and the way the cockpit looks. And even in some cases where, you know, certain things are moved on the airplane, obviously they can't change the engineering of the airplane for one customer. But they work a lot with airlines on this. And so the relationship of airlines to manufacturers can be very um, arm's length if you buy one or two of them. But if you're buying a lot of them, the manufacturer will say, what do you want out of your airplane? I'll do all I can to make that work for you. I don't know of any specific relationship, you know, like the Interjet one that's the same. I mean, it's it's so close we don't think of it like this, but a couple airlines in the world bought this Canadian airplane, the the C series airplane, right? And then it was yeah. that plane was adopted by Airbus and now it's yeah. an Airbus airplane, but they went out of the Airbus Boeing duopoly and said, I'm gonna buy this plane being made in Canada because I think it's a good airplane and it's a and it's a well-made airplane and it meets my needs. And yeah. in fact, it was such a good airplane that Airbus said, we want part of that. Yeah, Embraer became part of the Boeing fold. So if anything, there's been more consolidation. You go back a few decades, you could have bought a plane from McDonnell Douglas or Lockheed or somebody else. Uh, and, and now it's, yeah, really uh, Boeing and Airbus. But with these other uh, co- competitors out there, and I'm sure airlines are thrilled to see them out there. Uh, you know, Mitsubishi trying with regional jets. Um, because it, even if even if you as an airline don't end up ever buying those planes, you want to have somebody else competing for your business. The question is whether an airline right now has any credibility uh, you know, threatening to buy one of those planes rather than Airbus or Boeing. I'm not sure Airbus or Boeing would, would take that uh, threat all that seriously at this point, but we'll have to watch here as the years go on. Uh, well, do you have a question for us? 
You could call us at 305-379-7429, like Mike did, right, in the first segment. Uh, record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or you could jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for Fine or Wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint and talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, I do, Seth. This one is from Karen in San Antonio, Texas. Beautiful city. Complaining yep. about Southwest Airlines, one of Southwest's original cities, in fact, San Antonio. That's right. <laughs> Karen writes, my husband and I tried to book a vacation through the website. I assume she means the Southwest website. Yeah. And found we cannot use my Southwest gift card. I have a 250 gift card. And the only way I can use it is to book my flight and hotel separately, which will increase my cost. I just don't understand why the idea of issuing gift cards are not valid to use for vacation packages. Used to really love flying with Southwest, but may have to rethink my choices. Interesting, Ben. So airlines, and, and I don't know if everybody realizes this, some of these vacation package services, some of them are in-house at airlines. I believe American Airlines, if I'm not mistaken, unless this has changed, you know, they, they, they always had that as an in-house unit. Other airlines outsource this, where it looks like uh, you know Southwest Airlines, but it's really another company that might be packaging these these things for Southwest and other companies uh, out there. And, and it's just kind of a white label thing. Uh, so so sometimes it's not really as seamless in terms of being integrated with the airline as, as it might look. What do you think here, Ben? Uh, it's a $250 gift card. It the, the, the card just says Southwest on it. Uh, Karen goes to Southwest, says, I want to book a vacation, and she can't do it. I hate to say this, but I actually think this is closer to a wine, Seth. And the reason for that is I went to Southwest.com and I said, I want to buy a gift card. And it was actually very clear to me that I could not use it at Southwest Vacations because yeah. they told me that. So yeah. given that Southwest was so clear by now, had Southwest not made that clear, I would say, well, it is kind of obvious that if I've got this card that says Southwest and I'm on the Southwest website, can I buy anything? And I might say maybe there's something there. I understand because of what you said, why they couldn't do that. Right. The economics and the cash trading is different. The Southwest doesn't own the hotel. They're not they're not giving the room. They may be giving the airline seat for that, but they're not giving the room. So their money flow looks different. So I understand why they don't allow it to use. But they're very clear in their gift cards that it doesn't work for Southwest vacation. So my guess is that Karen just didn't. Maybe she got it as a gift and like. Right. Yes. Yeah, I didn't see it all. Yeah. But had she gone on the Southwest website and looked at you know, why can't I use this? I, it's pretty clear that it says that. So I think this is more of a wine. That said, I'm somewhat empathetic. She's got $250. She doesn't want to have to pay separate from everything. But I imagine if she gets her flight free or close to free with the $250 card, even though I don't know that you can fly around trip on Southwest for that low anymore. But um, <laughs> depending on where you go, maybe she's going to Houston, right? But, um, but I mean, if you get the flight for free, then maybe the total package is still going to be better using the card than not using the card yeah so no i, I agree i feel bad and likely right it was given to her she didn't know she didn't want to spend three hundred dollars uh for for what uh you know to her looks like she should be able to spend 250 dollars. well on final approach now that does it for airlines confidential this week uh please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked position and remember We'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us 
questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Get questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see the form on there from the Airlines Confidential Studios. I'm Seth Kaplan. And don't let Seth's comment about the big backlog of questions stop you from sending in those questions. <laughs> no, please. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We'll talk to you <laughs> Keep soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.